The wealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. As you know, this is the podcast where I get a chance to talk to some of the people moving the wealth management industry into new and interesting directions. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Mark Bruno, a longtime industry observer, formerly the Associate Publisher of Investment News, responsible for much of the industry research, industry-leading research created at that publication, and also an executive with Echelon Partners, an M&A consultancy for registered investment advisory firms. He's now the Managing Director of Informa Connect's Wealth Management Division, and I should mention a colleague, as Informa Connect is also the home of WealthManagement.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the Friends and Family Holiday Edition. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, sneaking this one in under the wire. Uh, happy holidays to everyone. Uh, I sketched out a quick bio there. Anything you want to add, uh, uh, you know, for folks who don't know you, maybe uh, where you're coming from, and you know, a little bit of a maybe flesh out maybe the professional background a little bit. Sure. Uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to do you know, a bit of uh, a hybrid sort of discussion here. One, where we can talk a little bit about what's going on in the industry, specifically on the M&A side. Um, and then two, where we could talk a little bit about you know what we're focused on here at Informa, um, which is not too far removed from all of the M&A activity. At uh, you know, Echelon Partners, I was there for about a year and a half, and it was an unbelievable opportunity for me to get a front row seat and visibility into not only the M&A activity, um, but you know, the, the, what drivers evaluation right now. Um, and one of the most incredible things, you know, a lot of our clients there were some of the largest, most sophisticated and fastest growing RIAs, but they were all struggling you know, with the same thing. They were all struggling with, with growth. It was almost like they were growing too fast. They weren't sure how to reinvest in the business. They weren't sure how to manage the business. They weren't sure what they were worth or how to invest in it. You know, they struggled from an organizational design or a compensation standpoint. And a lot of that really aligned with the benchmarking research that I had done when I was in investment news for years. So for me, as amazing as the opportunity with Echelon was, the opportunity with Informa and wealth management came up. And I just felt like it was sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity to educate what we've called internally the RIA plus community. So just to draw a line, the billion dollar RIA firms. And specifically as we see more and more M&A activity every day, there's a real need to provide content, education, and information to those individuals who are you know, driving some of the largest, some of the most influential RIA firms that are out there. So, so far, so good. Six, seven months in, um, learned a lot, produced a lot, and very much looking forward to what's ahead in 2022. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, you have been watching the space for a long time. And it seems to me that about 10 years ago, when I started at what was then registered rep, the idea of a billion dollar RIA was a, there were very few, if any, an RIA with more than a billion dollars. In just a decade, we've seen that explode. And I think we were talking early on, noticing that there is kind of a lack of professional community around the billion dollar plus RIA. You know, these are uh, folks, as you mentioned, fast growing, a new industry, really new businesses. You know, we've seen the, the, the industry go from a collection of practices to real corporate run corporations, businesses. 
you know, have you seen the acceleration over the past couple of years uh, the same way? You know, where are we in terms of the billion dollar plus RIA? How many are sure. out there? You know, where, where do they come from? It's uh, like you said, 10 years ago, there were just a handful. And now fast forward, you know, the end of 2021, we'll probably have somewhere in the neighborhood, depending on where the markets close out, you know, of a thousand to 1500 firms that have over a billion and I think the new threshold is not a billion, but it's a $10 billion in assets under management, Mark. You've seen a lot of the professional buyers, you know, as they're called in some cases, go out and become obviously much more acquisitive. Um, and even if they're not professional buyers, the most professionally run firms that are over $10 billion, if for them to continue to grow at the same relative rate, obviously they can focus on organic growth, you know, traditional business development and marketing, but it just doesn't move the needle in most cases like and the acquisition of a billion dollar or $2 billion firm. Um, so you're definitely seeing, you mentioned before, the evolution of practices becoming businesses. I think you know, what we're seeing now are businesses becoming platforms. Um, and those are the $10 billion plus RAs, the ones that are doing, whether it's you know, two or three acquisitions a year, or in some cases, 10 to 15. Um, you know, they all have different models. They'll have different interests, right? But you're you're really starting to see at the upper end of the RIA channel, these businesses that are becoming not just local or regional RIAs, but in many cases, national RIAs. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what the next couple of years hold because it looks like right around, right about now, if there are 35, 36,000 RIAs, you know, those top 1,000, top 1,500, it, it appears that they're managing about 90% of the assets and probably responsible for a larger share of you know the the profits and the revenues generated by the space. So it's amazing you know, just how concentrated their influence is um, and how much they're actually reinventing the wealth management industry in such a short period of time. Yeah, and oddly, we don't necessarily hear about them as much. I mean, we hear about them all the time because you know every day there's a deal to be written about uh, another acquisition, you know, some activity on on the business side. But it strikes me that the industry is becoming a real kind of a cliche, but a barbell, right? I mean, there's that collection of however many thousand billion dollar plus RIAs, the largest ones being platforms, and then still kind of a whole universe out there of small, maybe $100 million RIAs, single operators, maybe two, three people in a shop. But it's that middle ground that kind of seems to be a little bit uh, thinning out. Is that how you see it? Yeah. I mean, I think they're the ones that are, you know, in many cases, being acquired, right? Mm -hmm. um, or are the the most sort of viable acquisition candidates. You know, it's really tempting to try and categorize everyone by size. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to do though. Um, I'll, I'll say, you know, the there are only so many billion dollar firms out there and there are only so many firms that can acquire billion dollar firms. Um, you do see a lot of the firms that are, you know, we used to refer to it as, you know, the valley of death, right? They're trying to go from Seven, 250 million, 300 million, all the way up to a billion, right? How do you make that leap? Um, and in some cases, it, it could be, you know, you're merging with you know, a firm of similar size. Um, you know, just maybe you're younger, right? And the other firm, the owner is approaching retirement or past the point of retirement and they need a transition strategy. Um, so that demographic obviously has driven a lot of the m and um, I, I do think, you know, the top end of the market will only get larger um, and more influential, but that the middle if you will, you could see a lot of those firms getting absorbed. And if you go through and you see, I think last year there were a little over 200 deals that took place in the space. This year it will probably be even more than that. 
you know, the majority of those deals are involving firms that have, you know, 250 to say 750 million in assets under management. So I don't think that that sort of middle market, just for lack of a better way to describe them, disappears, but they obviously will become absorbed and part of maybe some of these larger firms. One other thing I'd say too, is, you know, when I've done um, a few RIA edge interviews over the last couple of months for the podcast, um, more than, I'd say about two or three individuals have brought up that there are more RIAs that are being created in a given year than are being acquired, which I thought was a really good perspective. So while you do have some of these firms that are younger and maybe smaller in size, they, they have a different kind of DNA, right? Um, it's almost like these millennial RIAs. Um, and they could grow up, so to speak, to be a little bit maybe more technology oriented. You know, maybe they're a little bit more digital in the delivery of their advice and their communication than a traditional RIA. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly they can scale and how quickly they can grow as a result. And if that middle becomes more of like a an RIA 2.0, if you will. Yeah. In the years that you've been watching the space from your different perches around the industry, uh, have you seen before the rate of acceleration that we've seen in the past couple of years? I mean, the size is different, right? The scale is different we're talking yeah. about, but I'm just talking about the, the the rate of acceleration in terms of deals. I mean, the deals have been, when I was at Echelon and we worked on the annual deal report, we would do a quarterly deal report as well. I think the last one I did was you know, this time last year, um, and it was the ninth consecutive year of record M&A activity. Um, so I don't see, you know, looking at some of the other reports that are out there, Fidelity does one, DeVoe and Co. does one. Just talking with advisor, advisor growth strategies, who does a, a deal room report recently, mm-hmm. I see no reason to believe that this number won't surpass, the 2021 activity wouldn't surpass 2020. In the end, if it's a deal or two off, it doesn't really matter um, because I think one of the most sort of notable developments isn't just the amount of activity, but it's the size of the firms that are being acquired. And you're just seeing all of these billion dollar plus firms that are being snapped up by the firms like CI Financial has obviously been incredibly active over the last couple of years doing more deals than just about anybody, but, you know, high towers right there too. And you get to a certain size and scale, you know, they've passed hundred billion in assets under management where you have to buy these larger firms in many cases. And that doesn't mean they'll exclusively buy the larger firms, right? If there are smaller ones that have you know, some runway and a, a lot of growth potential, those are obviously attractive targets to the professional buyers as well. But to me, you know, the volume is one part of the story, you know, the valuations and the size of the firms that are being acquired, that's, the real story, because that's how the industry landscape gets, you know, completely reshaped. And if you you look back, it's really happened over just a two to three year period of time. And what is fueling that? Then, I mean, is it, uh, uh, you know, you can say anything from accelerating uh, equity markets, uh, everything's up, 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 uh, cheap money, right? A lot of liquidity out there, a lot of money sloshing around looking for a home. PE firms entering the space, uh, driving a lot of this outside investors, maybe not native to the wealth management industry coming in. What's your take on what's fueling that rapid rate of acceleration over the past couple yeah, of years? It's all of the above. You know, it's never any one specific thing that's driving it, but I, I would say the PE component, right, is a game changer. There's no question about it. Um, you look at the 10, 15, 20 largest professional buyers, and just about all of them have major PE money that's behind them. Um, and it's allowing them to get access to capital that they can use to do M- the M&A activity. That is the size, right? Um, that it is right now. Yeah, we touched we touched on the demographic piece. I think that that's a driver to some extent. 
Um, but I think you know, more than anything, it's the presence of PE. I think there's a broader appreciation for just how good the RIA business is. You know, every year when we would do benchmarking studies, you would see that the most professionally managed firms, I mean, their margins were you know, 25% year over year. Um, there aren't that many investment opportunities that produce returns like that. If I said to you, I have an investment opportunity that produces 25% returns every year, right? Without a question. Um, more often than not, the underlying opportunity is probably a Ponzi scheme, right? Um, but these are really well-run businesses that have, yes, definitely benefited from market appreciation, but the firms that are the largest, the firms that are getting the highest valuations right now, they're growing by design, not by you know, default or market appreciation exclusively. So I think yeah, you throw PE in, you throw the demographic, you throw just a short supply of really, really good professionally managed firms. And just the growing appreciation for the RIA business model out there, I think that that has almost, it, it was almost like the RIA industry was a secret until you know, 2016, 2017. And then people started to appreciate it's a really good business. They're only providing advice to maybe one, 2% of the population. So there's theoretically nothing but growth right in front of it. So um, I think there are so many different things that have contributed to it, but it's just obviously just mushroomed over the last few years for all of those reasons. And do you think if we had a uh, significant, and I, almost, I don't know how we would characterize significant, but a uh, uh, downward turn in the markets for a bit of a prolonged stretch, say more than a quarter, you know, technically a recession, right? Uh, two quarters, three quarters of lower markets, GDP contraction. Would that just put a stop to this whole thing or, or does this have strength and life beyond? It's a, it's a good question. I don't think it'll put an immediate stop to it because a lot of these deals, it takes you know a year in many cases, right? To go from start to finish when you're involved in just the traditional M&A process. So you, you probably have a lot of deals that are halfway through or more. And if there was a major decline in the markets, it might cause some of the deals to just be, be delayed. Maybe a few of them fall apart. I mean, we saw it in the beginning of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a, I'd say a 30, 45 day window where no deals were getting done. And then when the markets bounced back as quickly as they did, everybody got back to work at the exact same time. Um, and it was an incredibly intense M&A period. So I think it depends on you know, one, you know, the depth and two, the duration, if there is some sort of you know, downturn. Um, but I still think that the business, the RA business, it, 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 the interesting thing about it is the worse the markets are, the more clients need advice. Um, so I don't think while the financials might take a hit in the short term, you know, that's when it, every financial advisor gets the opportunity to show his or her you know, true alpha, if you will, right? the value that a financial advisor provides you know, when you need it most. So while it could momentarily derail M&A activity, I don't think you know, this sort of M&A frenzy, if that's what you want to call it, will slow down anytime soon. Uh, you talked about uh, valuation drivers, and I'm kind of interested to touch on that because one of the things that I hear quite often from advisors, you know, well, what's my practice worth? What is it worth? What do I, you know, how, how much could I sell it for? And I know that there's no easy number uh, that applies blanket across all firms. All firms are different. In your research and, and from some of the conversations you've had with these RIAs, what are the valuation drivers really that uh, would make a firm, a billion dollar plus firm, uh, uh, attractive to one of these platform or large aggregators? Yeah, we tried to keep it pretty simple because it can get complicated. And I mean, it obviously is 
a complex process if you're trying to you know, really not just value a business in its current state, but its you know, value in its future state when it's merged or combined with another entity. But at the simplest level, you look for, for growth and you look for scale, right? Is it a business that's growing consistently and the growth is coming from a legit process, right? Um, or is it a business you know, where it's just a scatter chart, right? One year growth is 25, 30%. The next year it's flat, um, or is it just based on the markets, right? Um, so the firms that have a real process that are growing with consistency and have a real plan for driving growth, I mean that those are the firms that I'd say on the the, the, the at the highest level um, are deemed to be worth the most. And then you know, can you scale it? Um, if I'm running a five hundred million dollar firm and you plug me into one of these national professional buyers platforms, and all of a sudden I have access to clients in different states. That I've never had before, can I be scaled? Right? Um, do I have a business that allows me to take on 50, 60, 70 more clients? Um, or is it really not a business and it's just a practice and it's just me? So the more you can show that you're growing consistently, the more you can show that you're designed to continue to grow, right? And that your your business can be scaled, those are the two things that are driving valuations above and beyond you know, anything else. Of course, you want to look at things like the quality of the management team. You obviously want to make sure that you know the the clients are also happy and will transition as well but i'd say by and large the top of the list is always going to be growth and scale for me does the average age of the client base affect that at all i mean it does right it's definitely something that you take a look at um but i mean you also look for so I'll go back to the the growth and scale component right if i have slightly older clients one depends on what their age is um but mm -hmm. Am I adding the right types of clients at the right rate, right, to potentially offset you know, some of the decumulation or some of the, the clients I'm going to lose over time? And if it's a company that you know, I remember working on this one project where we were trying to value the business, and they actually had this incredible you know, relationship with a Fortune 500 company where certain employees would go through this executive training program, and at the end of it, if they quote graduated, they had access to all these different benefits and perks, and one of them was you know, financial advice and financial planning. Right. So that one relationship right there translated to you know, a brand new crop of high net worth individuals year in and year out. And in the end, it didn't really matter how old right, their existing clients were because they were adding right, brand new clients who were really qualified at an incredibly consistent rate. So there are so many different variables. Right. I'd say by and large, if you do have aging clients, it's something to, it's a, a yellow flag, maybe. More important is the growth side of things, right? Um, and our, is that firm consistently adding high quality new clients each year to more than offset anything that they may be losing? Can we talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the different variations of these large platforms that are acquiring? You mentioned CI Financial, the Canadian firm uh, that's been very active in the US market. Can you sketch out a little bit about what they're about, uh, uh, what you know about them, and and uh, uh, what they're looking for? Sure, uh, and I can say I've had some exposure, but limited exposure. I um, actually did a webcast with Kurt Mashinsky, their CEO, when I was at Echelon about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and in it, uh, he actually mapped out a few different things that were attractive about the RIA segment. Uh, it's not just the business model itself, and obviously a lot of the er the, the earnings that you know, we talked about before the margins. Um, but he did mention something that I thought was interesting. It's kind of stuck with me. It was just about you know, the composition and the nature of their existing clients that they have, whether they're asset management clients or just clients of CI Financial somewhere in, in Canada. He mentioned that 
at a certain age, you hit retirement in Canada and on a large number of their clients were migrating to Florida, either permanently or perhaps just as you know, snowbirds. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't really have a mechanism, right, for capturing any new cross-border or retaining you know, cross-border clients like that. And that was fueling a good part of you know, their interest in the US RIA market. So when he kind of mapped out exactly what their existing client base looks like, what their needs were, and where he sees or they see you know, the, the composition of their clients moving forward, it made a lot of sense that they're now looking to build what would essentially be the first and the only true North American wealth management or RIA you know, um, entity that's out there. Yeah. Do you draw a distinction between some of these large aggregators like a CI Financial and say like a creative planning will acquire a firm, that firm comes in and runs by the creative planning playbook, right? The technology, the branding, you know, these become creative planning advisors, you know, versus some of the different aggregators, which they allow to keep your own branding, your own personality, so to speak, uh, but you're still under the wing of one of these larger firms. Any sense of where that's playing out and which of those two models seems to be the most promising for the future, in other words, I guess. Yeah, I wish that there were like official terms that we could all agree on. Yeah. <laughs> um, because there, I mean, there just simply aren't. I think if you went back maybe to 2010, when Focus um, started to do acquisitions in a big way, they were one of the first true sort of aggregators out there, right? So they'd acquire you and you would essentially operate as an affiliate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you saw all of these other companies, you know, whether it's the Mercers or the Hightowers. You start to get more you know, involved in MA. And the term aggregator is used far less frequently, right? You hear more about you know, firms being integrators, right? Even if they have, you know, they do acquisitions and the RIAs act like an affiliate or a boutique, no one wants to be thought of as an aggregator. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone wants to be thought of as an integrator. You do have you know, firms like you know, Creative Planning, where it's essentially just one really large RIA. Um, I think it actually, if I'm not mistaken, if they do an acquisition, they're only doing 100% acquisitions and you become part of creative planning and they have one ADB. Um, so I think that there are all sorts of models that are out there. I don't, it's hard to say, you know, if, if there's one that's winning, right? I think they all bring different things to the table. And I think the firms that they're acquiring or they're merging with all have different things that they need or want. Um, in some cases, you know, maybe they don't want to be managing money anymore. So if you go to a firm you know, that has, you know, requires you to centralize all of your investment management and you as the owner or the owners want to focus on working with your 10 to 20 best clients or doing nothing but bringing in you know, new clients and acting sort of a chief, as a chief growth officer, I think it's less about the model or the label, right? And more about the sort of unique value that, you know, that professional buyer can add to you, your management team. And also I would say, employees. That's one sort of interesting sub-story here that kind of gets lost in the whole M&A discussion. There are so many you know, people who have sold their businesses over the last couple of years where yeah, they were the founders, right? They're at the point where they're going to retire this year, next year, at some point in the next, say, three to five years. That is for sure. What happens you know, to the 20, 25, 30 employees that work at their firm? What happens to G2 when those individuals move on and sell, right? So there are definitely a lot of buyers right now um, that are putting together programs that make sure that if we acquire your firm, David, right, I want to make sure that there's some sort of career development program and path here. And maybe if they don't want to be in a lead advisor role and they want to become part of a management team, 
than I have at my home office, some opportunities for you to come over and actually start running a business or parts of the business. So uh, that's part of the maturation process. And I think, you know, we, we hear all the time, like, do I have to take their brand? Do I have to use their technology? Do I have to centralize investment management? I think a lot of it, whether they're an integrator or an aggregator or a platform, a lot of what's being valued above and beyond the deal value itself um, is what sort of long-term growth opportunities the buyer can create for their existing employees for their G2. That's interesting. Uh, you mentioned focus and, and they're interesting. So I think one of the only, maybe the only publicly traded integrator, I guess, if that's the word we're going to use uh, in the RIA <laughs> space, you know, uh, uh, and, and Rudy Adolph has been pretty vocal about the dangers of PE money. Uh, he's not alone. Cheryl Penny, a dynasty too, talks a little bit about, you know, watch out for a private equity. When the markets pull back, they could pull the rug out from underneath these firms. You know, they have a limited time horizon. They need a monetization event as well. Is that a danger you see? I mean, because I, I got to tell you, every time I talk to an RA that's taken private equity money, they all say, this is long-term capital. This is patient capital. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're not looking to make a quick, you know, turnaround here. But I mean, a, a private equity firm has a duty to its, you know, limited partners, right? There has to be a monetization event at some point on the horizon. How do you view that debate? I, I, I think like anything, it'll depend on the partner, right? How invested they are in the space, how much they know about the space. Um, I think PE money obviously adds pressure. And as much as you could say it's short term, it's long-term capital. You're really not looking at more than you know, seven years or so, mm -hmm. right? For any particular investment, that's their model. Um, and you know, you know that there will be Obviously, a lot of you know, M and A activity at the higher level. If we wanted to forecast, you know, four, five, six years out as well, I don't know that that's a bad thing though. Um, you know, it it doesn't necessarily mean that you know if you're you know, a firm that has taken PE money that you, know, you just have to deliver and that's it. I think that there are some PE companies that are looking at some of these investments as an experiment in some ways. Um, you know, and I mentioned before just how limited the portion of the population is that's actually working with a financial advisor. Well, what if as a PE company, I can actually help you accelerate that growth? What if I can give you one you know, access to deal-making expertise, right? Um, so every deal is different, but most of these PE firms have someone on the board of a company that they're acquiring. They're helping very specifically, not just to evaluate the M&A op opportunities, but to help them figure out which ones might unlock some of the you know, more significant long-term growth. So I think, you know, there, there's the legitimate capital that they're providing to do acquisitions, but there's also the intellectual capital that they're lending to a lot of these firms that have not really been experienced in M&A in the past. So I do think that there are some benefits. We'll see, you know, what the, the longer term, if you will, yeah, impact is. I think you might actually start to see some of these professional buyers merge um, because you just like anything, you know, they're, are economies of scale to be had. And we'll see what happens with the markets and we'll see what happens with the economy. But if we were going through a prolonged stretch where you know, the the earnings you know, took a hit, um, I wouldn't be surprised if you started to see some of these companies that had PE backing come together, right? Um, it's just sort of how they they operate. Well, we're also seeing, I mean, you mentioned the PE piece, but you know, we've written about a couple of SPACs that are in the space right, right now. Um, and you know those companies present a different option. It's not the same as private equity. There's no question about it, right? But they are raising a fair amount. I believe the Kingswood SPAC uh, that Larry Roth has been working on raised somewhere in the neighborhood of 115 million, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Diana just reported on another one that raised somewhere in the neighborhood of 135 to 150 million. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's PE, right? There's public markets, but then, you know, this sort of SPAC entity, I'll be very interested to see how that plays out because that's a lot of capital, right? And there aren't that many companies in the pay, in the space that can command that sort of premium. Yeah. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see how it all plays out. It's, it's an incredibly dynamic industry and, and, and a lot of moving parts and, and a lot of interesting players inside of it. And as I think we mentioned before, you know, not really much of a, a roadmap or a place professional community for these firms to come together and, and, and try to discuss some of these topics. I guess we're trying to build something like that here with the RIA Edge uh, community. You want to talk a little bit about what you, your, your, your vision is for the RIA Edge offering here at Wealth Management? Sure. And I think, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but it doesn't matter how large and sophisticated or how successful these firms are. There really isn't any sort of central community. It's such a fragmented industry. In the end, it's thousands of small businesses, right, that are not connected by any one thing in particular. Um, And that was why going back, you know, 10, probably 15 years at this point, wow, um, when we acquired the Moss Adams benchmarking studies, it was such a valuable piece for our business, but also for me you know, personally, because you know, there are just basic questions like how much should I be paying a lead advisor, right? That you can't just walk down the hallway and talk to HR, right? And say, can you do me a favor? Can you just run the numbers and let me know what a lead advisor in St. Louis should be getting paid? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't exist, right? Um, so that was something that we attempted to solve for with research. And with Informa, we have so many different ways that we can help connect those, the RIA plus community. We started with the podcast that was back in July. And that was really just talking to some of the most active RIAs, you know, active in terms of M&A, but also actively managing their own growth through whether it's, you know, marketing or business development, the individuals who are really waking up every day and thinking about how do I grow one, two, 3%, whatever it is in that particular day. Um, and that's just intended to tell stories, right? And give people the opportunity to learn from experience. You know, we then, you know, very recently just launched our RIA Edge rankings on the website, WMRIAEdge.com, which recognizes you know, several hundred of the fastest growing RIA firms. And we will do more interviews with those firms to kind of go behind you know, their growth stories and give more intel and education to the broader wealth management audience. And then, very recently, we launched our first RA Edge uh, M&A and valuation workshop. These are smaller, more intimate events with 40 to 50 people, but we go deep on valuation and we bring some of the smartest and brightest minds in the space together to really help you understand not just what your business is worth today, but how do you actually drive more growth and increase your enterprise value. So we had Liz Nesvold, uh, we had you know, Brandon Kowal, and they really, from Advisor Growth Strategies, they really went deep on you know, not just what has been driving valuation over the last couple of years, but if you run an RIA firm and you really want to understand what your business is worth and how you can make it worth more, no one has more direct exposure to deal making right, and research than those two individuals. So we're trying to, you know, the community exists, we're just trying to connect it. Um, and, and it's funny, it's... Uh, Right before the first workshop, I was talking with an advisor who traveled from New York, runs a firm that's a little bit over a billion dollars in assets under management. And he had mentioned to me that he was really just sort of desperate for that kind of community. And not long before, he had actually gotten on a plane and went to a study group. It was in the sort of DC, Virginia area. And there were 10 other advisors. They paid their own dime. They traveled because they wanted to, not because they had to. 
and they just need the opportunity to connect and interact with each other, compare notes, and kind of learn what other people are doing and, and what they're thinking about for the future. So as far as the future goes, I mean, that's, that's our main event in June. You know, we've got the Wealth Management Edge Conference, which will be inside ETFs, WealthStack, and RIA Edge, which will be a bundle of workshops on M&A, valuation, human capital, and we'll get into some advanced financial planning strategies as well. But we know we have access you know, to the industry through wealthmanagement.com, through our events, right? And we're really looking to create what I think will be you know, an incredibly outcome-oriented experience. So that that's the thought process behind Edge. Um, and that is you know, one of the highlights when I look back at 2021 and the things that have really started to come together. We've done a lot. We've made a lot of progress this year. But that RIA Edge community, this is really just the beginning. And there's a lot of exciting stuff in front of us. That's fantastic. I, and I look forward to it. I think it's going to be a, a dynamic year. And uh, looking forward to... Uh, uh, meeting in person, uh, hopefully with, uh, a, a it lot was of fun, <laughs> right. I have to say it was small, right. And it was different, but it was great. And <laughs> as efficient as we've been for the last year and a half or wow, all coming up on two years, it's hard to believe nothing replaces the ability to just sort of sit down, have a conversation and it ends when you're done. Yeah. Not just when you have to go to the next zoom or teams meeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was incredibly satisfying. Well, that's great. And, and hopefully, you know, uh, things will work out, uh, with the pandemic and, and we'll get more of that in 2022. Mark, this has been fantastic. Uh, a great introduction, uh, to what's up, uh, with RA edge. Uh, and thanks very much for, for, for joining us. No, thanks Dave. I appreciate it. We should do this again soon. I like being on the other end of the microphone every so often. It keeps you fresh. Yeah, I know how right. hard it is <laughs> on your side. So thanks for having me and great job. Yeah, we'll do it again. Maybe we can make this a, a quarterly thing or something. Uh, you know, the, the recurring guest. On that the sounds like work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, thanks very much. I uh, appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. And you've been listening to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. Thanks for listening. podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.